Hi there guys. So recently I've been thinking through a lot of different issues and discussing them and uh, being contrarian in a way. And one of the people who I've been discussing them with is my friend um, in real life who I interact with who goes to my church. He was actually just uh, made the youth pastor of our church. But either way, so we had a video conversation and we actually recorded it and we talked about some of these subjects. Uh, a lot of it was like eternal security and then also how we are saved. And uh, I definitely lost that. If it was a debate, I lost the debate by uh, a mile. Um, I didn't articulate my position very well. And uh, but we were just talking and I think hopefully that we'll have more conversations in the future. But for now. I was thinking about it and I wanted to uh, articulate my position or at least what I'm thinking about uh, in kind of a concise manner so that uh, it can be out there and so that I can e even I myself can refer to it. And so that's what this is going to be today. I'm going to uh, kind of give an introduction, give out some, uh, let's say, logical reasons why I think what I think. And then I'm going to go into the Bible and look at um seeing why I think what I think and then have a conclusion there at the end. But one thing too is I have this new semi new setup where I've had these this equipment for a while but just trying to figure out how to make it all work. And so anyways, hopefully this works well. You can see uh this this messy room behind me now and so I have my camera here and then the computer and microphone and my notes. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, from before now, I've just recorded off of the computer. So we'll see how this goes and what becomes of it. But anyways, to get into it. So the question at hand, like I said uh, briefly, was the one of eternal security or um, assurance of salvation. So once you are, quote unquote, saved in um, a Christian paradigm, saved from your sin or saved from whatever we're talking about, uh, do you have an assurance of that salvation? Can that salvation be lost? Can it be snatched from you? Can you disqual can you yourself disqualify yourself from that salvation? And so formerly, um, I have taken the position that yes, you, you, you can't like, I mean, no, you can't, you can't disqualify yourself from salvation. Once you are saved, you are always saved. But then through the last year, through listening to different things, um, I started to question this, uh, assumption. And then also by in the last year, I've had, uh, as a lot of you probably have noticed, if you're watching this video and have watched my videos before, I haven't hardly posted anything in the last year. Well, that's because I've been too busy living my actual life. And in the course of doing this, I've adopted some spiritual practices. Um, and I don't mean that to sound weird, but like, um, actually started praying in a very real way, actually started, um, growing with God in a very real way and experienced in myself this feeling of being further away or closer to God, experienced this uh, live um, aspect of my salvation, not as this static thing which happened at one point in time. And so anyways, all of those things, and then also looking at the scriptures and that there are some places that seem to be very problematic if you're going to say that one cannot lose their salvation. And uh, I said at the end of the video I did with my friend Jordan, which I'll, I'll post up later on, um, that it, he seems to be explaining these away. That was kind of a rhetorical move by me. It wasn't very substantial. Um, but it does seem like you have to explain some of these verses away as well. So not only the witness of my own life, um, not only uh, just a diff like trying to really understand what salvation is, but also 
plain um, readings of some places in the scripture seem to show this. So anyways, that's the, my introduction about where I've come to where I am. And I am thinking about this. So although I would say I probably believe that you can lose your salvation, um, I am willing to be convinced otherwise. And uh, that's what Jordan is attempting to do with me. So, um, so I believe that you can lose your salvation. So as uh, points of note and emphasis that I will uh, be elaborating on. You were once unsaved doing the works of the devil. But now by God's work, which is grace, grace, uh, a good understanding of grace in the New Testament is God's work. Um, but, but now by God's work, you are saved through faith and do the works of God. So an unsaved person has an allegiance, I would say, ultimately to um, the devil, if we want to call him the father of all uh, evil spiritual beings. You have this allegiance to the devil. You do the works of the devil. Um, you know, the serpent's seed, in other words, is in you. And then you by um, by a, a experience of conversion, which is an experience, which is something that happens, you align now with God. You repent of your sins and you align with God and you do his work. Um, we'll talk about faith later, but you are saved through your faith um, and then you do the works of God. And even later we'll talk about how you are saved in order to do the works of God. So when you are saved by God's grace, by what God has done, that's what you're saved by. Through your faith, right? You're saved by God's grace, through your faith, and then in order to do the works of God. And so moving on to the next point, we'll try to bring all these this out. We are brought into Christ's life, and that's what gives us life. If we do evil, um, though we are in Christ, if we do evil, we are not in Christ's life. So eternal life is being united to God himself. God is the, is uncreated. God is beyond um, creation. And so what God is, is uh, life itself. That's what, I mean, not to get into some kinds of euphoro um, places, euphoro dilemma, but we are, we are united to God. By be, we are unite, we are given eternal life by being united to God, and we know that God cannot dwell where sin is. And so, one thing that I would say about this um, understanding that someone like Jordan has is that you have a real moment of repentance and trusting in Jesus for your salvation. And he says that doesn't need to be followed by works at all. And I would say, no, you have a real moment of repentance, repentance from your sins, acknowledging that you're wrong, and trusting in Jesus for your salvation, and that something that's ongoing. You have an ongoing repentance of your sin. You have an ongoing remaking of your life. You have an ongoing work. You're, you're, you know, consistently doing the works of God. And so when we are united to Christ, that's when we have eternal life. And we can only be united to Christ in our repentance and in our faith, right? And I don't, and this is starting to get into it. I don't think faith is just this intellectual proclamation that you believe that Jesus was incarnate, um, lived for 33 years, died on a cross, died on a Roman cross, and rose again from the dead. Like that doesn't change your life to believe that. Like, and, and belief in a like kind of like low sense to know that that doesn't change your life. You have to believe it. You have to act on it. You have the faith in it. So we are only given eternal life insofar as we are united to Christ's divine life, or we are united to God's divine life through Christ, through the work that He's done, through God's grace. So the next point. We receive God's works through faithfulness. So we receive God's grace through faithfulness. 
but faithfulness doesn't earn us anything. In other words, we receive God's grace through our faith, but our faith itself doesn't earn us anything. Me believing in something, even, you know, me, I guess in a pejorative way of how I would construe faith, me believing in something doesn't earn me something, but even my following of God doesn't earn me something. My faithfulness is the way in which, my faith is the way in which I am receiving God's grace by grace through faith. Faith is something of substance. It's something actual. So, and this is where in Hebrews, faith is the substance of things hoped for. What does that mean? We are in hope of that eternal life. We are in hope of that eternal life. And so faith is the substance of that. It's being in God's kingdom, doing his work. So all of these things are united to one another. Okay. So if I become unfaithful, I sever myself from the work or grace of God. So when I lose my faith, right? And we know that, and again, we will look at some of these things, but like faith um, and James, you know, your faith can be increased. Um, in James 1, there are other places where we see people's faith being increased, how some people have greater faith than others. Does that mean that they just believe really, really, really hard? Does that mean that when an intellectual objection comes up to the divinity of Christ, that they just push it to the side and they just believe really, really hard? That they just blindly believe? I think this is part of the reason why the new atheist came about in America was the response to this kind of American evangelicalism, um, where faith is just believing in something and someone who has greater faith believes really, really hard. So if I become unfaithful, if I am not living this life, which God has brought me into by his works, by his grace, apart from anything that I could do, God didn't come to me and say, here are your 12 steps in order to receive eternal life. He said, no, here I am. My work is in you through your faith, right? That's something that you do through your faith. And so the work of God, this is the work of God. But if I become unfaithful, right? If I step out of that faith, then I am severing myself from the work of God. And by severing myself from the work of God, then I am no longer, as we talked about earlier, receiving that divine life, receiving eternal life. Um, so then if we sin greatly, we have assurance by repentance and doing the works of God. So if I do a sin, I have assurance of my salvation by my repentance and by doing the works of God through my ongoing faithfulness. And this isn't to say that, and Jordan brought this up and I hadn't thought about it, but I would say, you know, so say you sin and you haven't repented yet. That doesn't mean that in that moment, you know, and I think it's a very crude way of looking at it, but and I don't even know if I would uh, accept the categories themselves, but it doesn't mean that all of a sudden now I'm going to hell instead of heaven. God knows my heart. When God comes to judge the earth, judging is putting things right, right? It's not, necess it's not necessarily a legal thing. Judging is putting things right. And so when God comes, he is where all of our deeds, all of who we are is laid bare before him. And in our heart is still insufficient for him. But we either have a heart of repentance, we have a heart that wants more of him, or we have a heart of hardness that turns away and turns into ourself. Faith is, um, as uh, Trey from the Telus Bound channel would say, faith is openness to other right? And doubt is closing in on yourself. So this is why we see in Isaiah and even in the other prophets and in the gospels, you know, Christ is going to come 
or when the day of the Lord comes, the mountains will be laid low. You can't hide in anything. Everything you have is made bare before the face of God. All that you are is made bare before the face of God. And are you in a state of repentance, right? Or are you in a state of unrepentance? And so it's not that in that moment when I haven't yet repented. It's it's a greater thing. It's this ontological reality of what kind of life am I living in? Now, obviously, if I willfully don't repent and I willfully go down this path, this is Romans 1, their foolish hearts were darkened. You can darken yourself, right? And this is an understanding of sin as changing your ontological reality, changing who you are yourself. Sin isn't just something bad that you do and then God gets mad at you about it. Sin is something that taints you. It's something that brings you lower. It's something that you know turns you out of the image of God, right? Because the image of God, the image of God is the potential to do, to you know, be like him. And this likeness is the thing that is like him. And so when we are sinning, when we're living this life of sin, we are distancing ourselves from the image of God, we're becoming less and less like him. And God cannot be united to those things that are less and less like him. And he's not going to, you know, this is a different conversation, but he's not going to force us into repentance. Our repentance comes from ourself. So anyways, um, justified is a status that we have, uh, by and large, um, this gets very complicated, uh, very quickly, but justified in a way is a status that we have. Faith is what constitutes that status. So you see this in Ephesians 1, where um, you have the saints. Paul refers to the believers there as saints and that they're faithful. And what the saints is, is a status. You are saints. And what is what constitutes that status? It's being faithful. That's how you are a saint. And so justified in the same way, kind of. Um, although we are ongoingly justified and Christ himself was justified. So it gets very complicated. But as we understand it, being in right relationship with God is a status, right? We are we are either in right relationship with God or we're not. And there is, you know, mushiness here, as I just said, with the day of the Lord, when God comes to judge the earth, our deeds are laid bare and we either have a heart towards him or we have a heart against him. Um, so someone can have, you know, seemingly more sin than not. You know, I brought this up with Jordan, like someone can uh, be born into a very bad family and do something incredibly virtuous in the eyes of God. And I can be born into really good circumstances, have a lot of good stuff around me and give away everything I have and still not be as righteous as that guy is. Uh, this is a point that C.S. Lewis makes in mere Christianity, but it's also a point that the saints of the past had made and monks of the past had made as well. This isn't something that's new. It's that God really knows our hearts. He knows if we have a repentant heart or a hardened heart. And when that day of the Lord comes, we will be revealed. We will be uncovered. Uh, there are some verses about this as well. So justified is a status, um, but faith is what constitutes that status. It's the substance of that status. Um, and then the last thing that I would say with all of this is that your actions must follow what you believe or else you don't believe it. Now, someone like Jordan would say, well, if you believed it for one point in time, uh, you can't lose it, and which is what we're going to get into. I'm kind of laying out my um, a little bit of an introduction. Maybe it's the exhaustive. I don't know of what I believe about uh, faith and what faith is doing in our life with respect to being made right with God or being, you know, brought away from him. But I think that our, your actions must follow your beliefs. If you believe something, you will do it. I don't think belief is saying that you're going to do something. I think belief is doing something, right? Um, and I mean, in, in a 
weird way, belief can be saying things as well uh, because it is, just a second. So anyways, as I was saying, your actions must follow what you believe. If you believe something, then your actions will follow it is basically um, the basis of this point. So anyways, to get into the second section that I wanted to cover, which is the verses. So the first verse that, or couple of verses that we're going to look at is in first Corinthians 15 verses one and two, particularly where, um, St. Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand. So Paul's declared this gospel to them, preached it to them. They received the gospel and they're standing in the gospel, right? Um, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word, which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So we are saved by this gospel, or the the Corinthians at least, at the very least, um, in this interpretation, are saved by this gospel if they hold fast that which is preached, unless you believed in vain. So you either have a vain belief, which is, um, you know, to no effect, right? Your belief is to no effect, or you hold fast to this, um, or else by implication here, um, one is not saved. And then he tells them, what this gospel is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So, I mean, this 1 Corinthians 15 is seen as one of the earliest creeds in the church. And so what is happening here seems to be that this very basic gospel message, if you will, is being said to be, if you hold fast, right? If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, um, you will be saved, right? Because this is a conditional statement. So um, conditional statements are if then. Sometimes you can state the then first and then the if. So um, you you are saved if you hold fast that which I preached to you. Or you could say, if you hold fast that which I preached to you, then you are saved. It's a conditional statement. So um, this is the first one, which I feel like is very hard to get around in this question of losing your salvation. Again, as we just covered, uh, some of what we just covered was to say that this is what faith is, and then this is how you can be disunited from God um, through your loss of faith, um, which is a substantive thing. Um, so then the next one that I want to look at is Romans uh, 11. And these couple of first verses are going to be the most obvious, these first four. And then from there, uh, we'll have some a group uh rather large group of slightly less obvious ones. Um, but if you were, if you, you know, I don't think that they're entirely less obvious if you see the argument that I tried to lay out already. So Romans 1, 11, starting in verse nine says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs. Always. I, I say, yeah, this is, oh, 19, my bad. Starting in verse 19, that makes more sense. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. So Paul is prob, you know, talking about the branches of Israel were broken off that you might be grafted in. You know, that's, he says, well said, that's a true statement. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. So their unbelief 
broke them off. So by implication, they had belief before, and that's why they were in. And then you're standing by faith. And then what does he say next? For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So here you are in God's body because you have faith. But if you, you know, you are not to be spared either. You know, if God is going to break off Israel because they are unfaithful because of their unbelief, right? And if we understand belief as something that you do, not just something that you believe really, really hard, then you're, you're in us as the church are in a position to be broken off as well. He may not spare you either, right? We're standing by faith now, but the implication is if you lose that faith, you're not going to be standing anymore. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, so there's severity towards those who fall, goodness towards you, if you continue in his goodness. So if you continue in your faithfulness, in your faith, in your belief, then you, I mean, at the very least, even if we're taking faith as just this intellectual thing that you check the box and believe, you have to keep believing that in this, you know, within this, it's, I see it as rather hard to escape. Um, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. So this applies to us as well. We fall away. God can still bring us back. God is always waiting there. He's always wanting us to come back in. God is merciful and gracious, um, as the Psalms say many a time. So I don't know how entirely it could be made more clear than a passage like this. But to bring up another one, we have 1 Corinthians, going back to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9. Twenty-four through twenty-seven. So this one is a little bit less obvious than the previous two, but I still think it's pretty obvious. So it says, "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it." So, what are we? What is this race that we're running in? Hopefully, towards our salvation, right? But only one, you know, only one receives the prize, or you know, in this case, um, I guess it could be many, but. The one could be the church. Those who are in the church receive the prize. And everyone competes for the prize, is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Thus, therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Least when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Okay. So you could say, well, this is just for crowns. This isn't for your salvation. This is just for sanctification. Then why is Paul saying, I do these things. I, I, I bring myself into the state. At least I'd be disqualified from the race itself. That seems to be the implication here. At least, I mean, I guess you could say disqualified from the crown. But why, why would we be running in order to gain a crown? And this goes into a whole understanding of faith. Because as we said before, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's uniting with God. If we're united with God, we are seated in the heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians 1. We are rulers and reigners. That is what our destiny as children of God is. There isn't this, this weird thing where some people are quote-unquote saved, but they're not a part of the divine nature. They're not ruling and reigning with God because God, when he saves us, as Paul says again and again, we are made co-heirs with Christ. 
We are given this rulership. We are given these crowns. We are made into his children. And because God is king of the earth, his children then are, you know, princes, I guess you could say, or princesses, although that sounds kind of weird. Um, even Paul, in our, in our modern translations, this is, this is watered down, but he talks about how we are made sons of God. He doesn't say sons and daughters for an obvious reason because the male and the female is made a son because the son gets the inheritance. If you are in God's family, you are getting the inheritance. You're not just, you know, not being punished by God for something. And again, it's not entirely like God is just punishing us because we've sinned. It's because sin brings us away from him. So I don't know. I, I, I think this is a pretty obvious passage in this um, vein. And the last obvious one that we're going to look at is Colossians um, 1, 21 through 23. So Paul says, And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, so we were once not a part of this kingdom of God, we were once alienated in our mind by what we did, by what we did, we are alienated, yet he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So God has done this for us, right? If indeed you continue the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to you, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I don't know how it could get more again, obvious than this. And I'm not just like pulling these verses and making a fringe theological case either. Um, if indeed you continue in the faith, why must we continue in the faith? If we, if we want to be reconciled to God, if, if we're going to be presented holy and blameless above reproach in his sight, why was, why was me we continue in the faith, not only continue in it, but grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. You're not moved away from it, right? This isn't just like, um, you know, I don't know. It's, it seems to be, to me at least, to be very um, obvious, um, for lack of a better word, of what is going on here. Um, if, you know, if indeed you continue in the faith, then we are saved, right? And as I laid out before, some of the exceptions towards this and what God's judgment actually looks like um, from my reading of the Bible. So now to move on to some less obvious verses. The first of these is going, and there's a lot of them, so uh, bear with me. Galatians uh, 5, 1 through 6. Stand fast, therefore, in liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, but he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempted to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So someone could say, well, this is, you know, and this is why I put it in less obvious category. Um, this is just if you become circumcised. But what are you doing in becoming circumcised in this context? You are trying to win favor with God by doing something, right? By doing a work apart from the faithfulness which God has put in front of us, apart from the faith. So this is why I think that this is a, um, very obvious passage because this isn't, doesn't just apply to people in the first century. This applies to all of us. If we are justified and then we say, well, actually I should, you know, come up with 12 steps that I need to do in order to be justified again. 
that's not you being justified. That is that is you trying. Well, that's not you being ju justified in the eyes of God. That's you trying to justify yourself. You've fallen away from grace. And if grace is the working of God, obviously you've fallen away from grace because now you're back into your working. And so we're told that neither uncircumcision uncircum nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Neither you know, doing your righteous deeds, whether you do those righteous deeds or don't, doesn't avail anything but only your faith which works through God's love, right? Or love itself, I guess. I shouldn't say God's love because I haven't studied it that hard to see if it's actually God's love or not. So anyway, that's one. And because we're in Galatians 5, we can go down because another passage that we have is in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're practicing these wicked works, right? In if you're, this doesn't mean that if you stumble and practice them, this means that if you're living a life of practicing these wicked works, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not be saved, right? I mean, if, if we will, if we want to understand salvation in this way, which I think is the proper way to understand salvation. If we do these things, we, are, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Christ's work in us, his grace, is sufficient to cover these things in our faith, right? We are saved by grace through faith. But if, if we are unrepentant, just doing these works, then we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the next one is going to be Revelation 21, 6 through 8. I maybe should have narrowed these down because there are quite a few of them. Um, and he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, what does he say? He who overcomes, right? It doesn't say he who believes once. He who overcomes will inherit the kingdom of God. I will be his God and he shall be my son, meaning that you will be given this inheritance, right? As we already talked about. He shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he will be my son. He who overcomes. So it's the one who overcomes. Um, and then there are other places even that we're going to get into where it says, he who overcomes to the end. So the next passage is first John. And some people don't like Jordan himself was kind of, at least from what I could hear, kind of weary about first John. But anyways, first John chapter two, three through six. Now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So how do we know that we have faith? How do we know that we're united with God? If we keep his commandments, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. So he who says, oh yeah, I made that. I, won't, I did the altar call and I did the profession of faith one time, but you live this sinful life. You do not know God. And by not knowing God, you are not brought into his kingdom. Um, is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. He who abides 
He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as he walks. So again, um, rather obvious in, in this way that he who is abiding is the one who is going to be saved. He who is walking in these ways is the one who is saved. And you could say, well, this, this isn't saved. Okay, but this is how you know that you're with God. And what does it mean to be with God? I would say that means to be saved. I don't think that you can have this place where you're quote unquote saved and you're not um, with God. So anyways, uh, we have another passage here, which is verses 18 and 19. Little children, it is last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come, which we know, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So there is this Antichrist, capital singular, that is coming. Um, but we know that many Antichrists will come. Um, so, and already have come. So the Antichrist is anything that is instead of Christ, right? So the Antichrist is someone who puts something instead of Christ in a way. Anti doesn't mean against, it means instead of in Greek. So they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So someone who leaves the faith, who is out from us, of their own will and volition, is not of us. Um, so it seems like someone can be falling away right um now the next one is going to be revelation 3 5 since we're in this part of the bible is it 3 5 yeah 3 5 um and there is some lead up to this maybe i'll i'll read it therefore if you will not watch i will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So the first thing to note here is that he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, which is symbolic of being purified, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, meaning by implication that God does blot out names from the book of life. So two important points. And then Christ will confess his name before God and the angels, which seems to be what salvation is. Um, that Christ is not blotting out the name that he has written in the book of life. And this is the person who overcomes. This is a person who is faithful to the end. So again, this is in the less obvious category, but I think it's still... Uh, sufficiently, at least for me, it's sufficiently convincing. So the next one that we're going to look at is going to be Ephesians 5. Um, let's see here. I have verses 3 through 14, but that seems to be rather many. So we'll see. Um, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetedness, let it not be named, named among you as it as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolishness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, un fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. 
So again, a little bit less obvious one where we have a vice list here. So a vice list is where you list a bunch of sins. Um, so these people who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And in this understanding of salvation I laid out earlier, um, salvation is by repentance. So you're repenting of these things. You are not associated with them anymore. Your heart is towards God. Even even in your stumbling, even in your fallings, um, God is merciful and gracious and your heart is towards him. And so this is, seems to be, I mean, this is less obvious, obviously, but um, nobody who does these things has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, which we have already laid out, seems to strongly indicate, and I would say with certainty, um, is salvation. So uh, next is Matthew 6.15. Um, and so this reads Matthew 6 15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So this seems to put condition on whether or not you are going to be forgiven. And I think part of this too, um, just to comment on the passage quickly is if you are not forgiving, you cannot experience forgiveness yourself. So um, the one who is forgiving is the one who experiences the forgiveness of God. It's almost as if you cannot accept um, the forgiveness of God if you are unforgiving. But you can have said the sinner's prayer and still be have an unforgiving heart. Um, of course, I think that you could malign and mangle uh, this passage if you would like to, but I don't think that that's very responsible. So then Matthew 10, starting in verse... 22 and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved so jesus seems to be you know he's saying that all these wild things are going to happen um you'll be hated but he who endures to the end will be saved not he who once believed and then fell away he who endures to the end he who perseveres to the end by his repentance by his faith obviously as um, saint paul says that person is the one who will be saved. Now, Matthew 10, 32 through 33, um, same chapter, which says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this is, this is like a, a present. This is in the present tense. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Obviously, he who confesses, right, in this life, Jesus will confess him before the Father. But whoever is in a state of denying, whoever denies me before men, he, in the future, I will deny before my Father. So, in this way, it seems like, again, that someone can be in a state of, you know, you could have said something. You could have lived the life. If your ultimate posture of your heart when God you know, comes to judge, lays bare everything, the mountains are laid low. If that is to be in denial, if that is to be in doubt, which doubt is the turning in of yourself, instead of in faith, instead of in the confession of Christ, then you will also be denied before fa the Father who is in heaven. 
Um, again, a little bit less obvious, but I think still uh, indicates this truth. And if it doesn't, at least it has to be explained away. And um, it's, yeah. So then Luke 12, this is a parable. So Luke 12, starting in verse 42. Who then, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give him their portion of food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if the servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet he committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with you. For everyone to whom much is given from much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of them they will be asked more. So anyways, um, to sum up, what is going on here is this is a servant. The master is Jesus. So the servant is someone who at least is professing faith or who, and I would say in a way, um, we're all called to be servants of God. So it's what we are doing with that. So he who is, you know, a person, when the master comes, um, this person, you know, could be someone who is thrown out with the unbelievers to the portion of the unbelievers. And especially in the context of this parable, this is someone who seems to be, at least um, outwardly serving the kingdom of God, right? Because he's, he's thrown outcast with those who have no faith with the unbelievers. Um, again, a less obvious passage than the first ones that we covered, but still um, rather striking if you're going to hold a, a contrary position. So then Second Peter 2, um, starting in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. So this is someone who has had seeming to be walking in the way of righteousness um, for it would have been better than for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to turn from that holy commandment. Um, So it seems like even here that the rhetoric is upped where not only does that person who um, falls away, not only are they now just in their original state, but they're worse than before because they have seriously rejected um, Christ's offer of grace through faith. So then the last um, couple of verses that we have are all in Hebrews. So the first is Hebrews, and Jordan and I talked about this in our conversation as well, again, which I'll post uh, in, a, in a little while. But um, some people quibble about Hebrews, but I think that these are sufficiently um, important, and maybe we can argue about the context, but they seem to be, and the fact that it's mentioned over and over again seems to be at least somewhat convincing. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things 
we have heard, least we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us, those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, um, so if this word spoken by the angels was steadfast and every transgression and obedience received a just award, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect this? If we neglect what has been given to us, what has been spoken by our Lord? And he's calling, you know, so Lord here, Lord, almost every sense in the New Testament is referring to Jesus and to acknowledge Jesus as Lord is to be a believer in some in some sense. And so he seems, I mean, we would believe that th at least the vast majority of the people being written to here are believers. And so it seems to be very uh, odd if this wasn't referring to believers who couldn't neglect this great salvation and then not be given um, what is promised. So moving on to the next chapter, Hebrews 3, and I don't have enough time necessarily to explain all of these, but Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ as a son of his, over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing hope, firm to the end. So we are Christ's house if we hold fast the confidence. So it's not just like we can just do it once, not hold it fast. It's if we hold fast this confidence. So then uh, next one is Hebrews uh, 3, again, starting in verse 12. Beware, brethren, least any of you any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today, at least any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So again, we are partakers of Christ. What does that mean? We are co-heirs with him, right? We are seated in the heavenly places if we hold fast this beginning confidence steadfast to the end. So it's not like we just do it once and then fall away and do whatever we want. It's we are living this life. We are becoming, and in this life, again, it is in this life that we are becoming um, heirs with Christ, right? We are, we are given sonship even in this life. Um, eternal life has started now, and we are growing in that. And if eternal life is closeness with God, we are growing in our eternal life. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So there's this promise of entering God's rest. And if we understand rest, um, as Genesis does, rest isn't just like God, oh, I'm so tired after creating the world. Rest is um, this temple term, which means to rule. So now that God is in his rest, he's on his throne, ruling over this thing that he has made. We are called to rule as well, um, but we could come short of it. What does that mean, right? You could, you could not be able to enter into his rest and by way of all these other passages and by way of the rest of this passage which we don't have time to go through um this is by our sin right um and then so the last one is all the way in chapter 10 of hebrews i am skipping hebrews 6 because it is quite complicated and i don't know enough about it to use it but a lot of people do use that especially um 2.2 uh how eternal security isn't a very good doctrine to hold. So he says, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you suppose will be brought? Will will he be thought worthy of who had? Will he be thought worthy who has? trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it seems like, again, if you are living, you are in this belief, if you are in the church, if you are in, um, I guess, we want to use these sort of categories, in a saved category, um, but then you fall away from this, right? You willfully sin, then it's not going to turn out well for you. Um, if if this is the consequence of Moses' law, how much worse the punishment of going against the law of liberty, going against the law of Christ? So I had to move some of my stuff um, because I was running low on battery, um, but we'll finish up here. So the last section is a very important section where I will be attempting to address um, some of the places where it is said that the opposite is taught. So the first of these places is, right, because we had our obvious verses that obviously teach what I think is going to be taught, but then there are also some places that seem to be problematic. Um, so the first of these is going to be Philippians 1, verse 6. We'll read ahead for it, though. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think of, to think this of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both both in my chains and in defense and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for all, for you all, with the affection of Jesus Christ. So verse 6, again, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So the day of Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord. Um, this is obviously a very Trinitarian passage because the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, and then now Jesus Christ being uh, uh, made equivalent of that. But this here saying that... Um, God will, this good work that God has begun, he will complete it in Jesus Christ. Paul is certain of this, um, but why is he certain of this? Um, because of all these other things that he is saying. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So, by logical conclusion, if they have remained steadfast, and Paul is dealing with a lot of churches that didn't, then wouldn't they remain steadfast even further? Um, being confident of this, Right, so for your fellowship of the gospel from the first day until now, just as it is right for me to think all this of you, so it is right for me to think this of you. It is right that to think that God will complete this work in you. By converse, Paul could say it is not very good for me to think this of you. Maybe I should think something else because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So these believers are holding to the faith so so firmly that they give Paul confidence and confirmation that right they 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 are so faithful and they're living this life they're living out the gospel so much that they confirm it for Paul um, you all are partakers with me of grace 
So what does it mean to be a partaker of grace? Again, if grace, largely speaking, is the work of God, they are partaking of what God has done, right? Which is an, is an action of what we do by grace through faith, right? Faith is, faith is something that we actually do. It's not just something that we check the box and say we intellectually believe. So um, on the contrary of this seeming to say the other thing, I actually think it says the, uh, the exact opposite. I think um, if you even just read right here around it, um, it seems to say the exact, the, as I said, the exact opposite of what, um, some may say. So the next one is going to be, um, first Peter one, three through five. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance uncorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this one is a little bit less um, obvious for the other side than the last one was. Um, but the argument here would be that this incorruptible and undefiable, un undefiable, undefiled inheritance does not fade away and is reserved for these believers who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So these believers are going to be revealed. So it's saying that you are kept in the power of God through your faith. And then this would obviously be having to understand faith as a one-time act of proclamation and intellectual belief um, that you have basically. Um, and maybe it could be a genuine belief. You know, maybe it could be a heart belief, but it's it's just one time and you could fall away from it. So uh, beside the fact that this seems to witness, uh, this kind of reading would witness against everything else that we've just showed. It is also the fact that those who are kept by the power of God through faith. So again, if we understand grace as something that God does, the power of God is also right working in the world. So by the power of God through faith, right? for salvation, which we'll get into, um, or actually, I didn't have this as a part of my deal. Maybe I'll do it the very next one, um, for salvation, and then to be revealed at the last time, right? These people, when God lays everything low, they'll be revealed as those who are close to God. Um, and that's, again, this, this understanding of the mystery of the people who are in the kingdom of God and those who aren't. Um, so, Again, on the contrary of teaching this one thing, I think it's actually teaching the exact opposite. So keep this in mind real quick, who are kept by the power of God, so by grace, by God's work, through faith, for salvation. Okay, so why why, why is the power of God working in you through faith? It's for your salvation. Um, so then if we understand that, let's take a little detour. Go to Ephesians 2. So this is the uh, primal passage on or one of the primal passages on um, grace, faith, and works. Uh, Ephesians 2. So I'll make it short by starting in verse 8, but there's a lot before this that would be necessary. So this isn't a very good un um, analysis of this passage, but it is something to think about. For by grace, so by God's work, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you are saved that is, your salvation is what is a gift of God. It doesn't, it doesn't say 
that your faith is a gift of God. Your salvation is a gift of God. Your salvation is not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this for here, and this is the same sentence in Greek. Um, people in antiquity liked to write very long sentences. Um, even in, not e only in Greek, but even in Latin, um, some sentences just go on for pages and pages and pages. Um, and we would see them as rambling sentences, but this is just kind of how their uh, grammatical structure uh, functioned in the day. But so this four is the same sentence. And so four is a coordinating conjunction. And so four is like this. What, what, why, why is this all happening? It's for or because we are his workmanship. So we are saved by grace through faith. And again, if we understand faith as not just something that you say you believe, but if a belief if a faith that you have is something that you act on and why were we, why were we saved by grace through faith in order that we might be his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works because right. We are saved by grace through faith to be God's workmanship, right? So going back to Peter by God's power through faith for salvation. And so, we are saved for our salvation. And so our salvation, in a way, our, our um, you know, so if salvation is being freed from sin, that is something that we actually have to participate in. That is something that we have to do. God isn't just going to let us sit there and go on sinning, go on, you know, all these things and all these viceless. And um, that's not us, you know, really being saved um, because being saved is being freed, Right. And if you're still in bondage to these things, you're not saved. So anyways, so that's that passage. We have a couple more. Uh, this is one here. This is one that Jordan himself likes quite a lot, which is John 10, um, verse 28. But we'll read up to that. Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. As I said to them, or as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So the first thing to note here is that um, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my father's hand. So Jesus is referring to the sheep. No one shall bring my sheep out of my hand. So this seems to be an external thing where someone could be trying to pull these sheep away. But then also, um, the sheep are people who follow Jesus, right? We're told in other places, the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? Um, even the parable of the lost sheep, we often forget that the lost sheep is the one who repents. That's what Jesus says at the end of the parable. It's not just someone who wandered off, didn't know what they were doing, and Jesus is like, oh, I'm actually here, come back. The lost sheep is one who Christ is going after because Christ goes after us in our sinfulness. But the lost sheep is the one who repents. The reason why he's brought back is because of his repentance. And Jesus even says here, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. So following Jesus is an action. It's not just, you know, oh yeah, I follow Jesus while I, you know, lie and yell at people around me and have a spirit of anger that dwells inside of me. No, following Jesus is an action. So just as hearing Jesus' voice is something that distinguishes these sheep, just as Jesus knowing them, 
right? So uh, knowing them like in an intimate way, because God knows all things, but knowing is a more dynamic concept right here. They follow him. He gives them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, right? The sheep are given eternal life. He doesn't, he doesn't say here, you know, that someone who doesn't follow him is given this. It's someone who does follow him. So this one, you know, I don't think is, I think this is one of the strongest passages um, against what I am trying to argue for, but I don't think that it proves the opposite. For one, it doesn't, I mean, so one thing to note here is that are these things convincing you in your own mind? Um, I'm probably not going to convince you. You have to examine these things for yourself. Um, but this doesn't cause me any problem to look at this um, because I see it as very much just those who follow him, those who are the sheep will not be snatched out of his hand. And this snatching is from something that is external. Um, so then Ephesians 1, uh, this one is often used as well. Uh, verses 13 and 14. So verse 13. And him also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the important part here is you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, so one thing to note first is that a seal is something that can be broken. Paul doesn't say you were bound by the Holy Spirit of promise. He doesn't say, you know, this is an eternal seal. Part of what a seal is, right? A wax seal in the ancient world is to keep something so that it can be broken, right? The seals can be broken. So we're sealed with the spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Guarantee here um, doesn't mean like... Um, Yes, you're going to get it no matter what. A guarantee, um, and sometimes this word is still used in this way, although it's pretty seldom. It's basically fallen out of this context in English, but it's basically like a deposit um, or a down payment. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the deposit of our inheritance. The, the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you is a deposit of your salvation. And we don't have, so again, I don't think that this um, is teaching that you can't, know, fall away from the faith at all. I think Paul is making a completely different point. And if we had time to, I'm trying to keep this video short, although it's getting very long. Um, if we had time to go through the rest of this chapter, I think it actually is showing the opposite. It's, it's showing the opposite in the sense that, um, of what faith is and what justification is in this, in this passage and how you, how this inheritance is received and what it means to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. But at least on the face of it, I don't think that this, again, this doesn't bring me any qualms and doesn't um, make me feel like, oh no, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I can never be unsealed now. Um, because again, even if we're going to look at the passage, um, we're sealed with the Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Right. And so this inheritance, again, co-heirs with Christ, these crowns that were given, this place in the kingdom. And so even people who say you can't lose your salvation, they say, well, you wouldn't really get an inheritance. You're just saved from your sins. I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches at all. So the last one um, that we're going to look at is Romans 8. This is one I don't see actually come up as much, but um, I do think it's actually kind of can get 
pause to some of this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is in some ways the end of a section of Paul's argument in the entire book of Romans up until this point. So it's kind of hard to unpack. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to be making excuses, but at the same time, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation. So hard things or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And the answer obviously to these rhetorical questions is no, none of these things shall separate us from the love of Christ. Now, if we're just taking this as the love of Christ, right? These are believers who cannot be separated from the love of Christ. So in one sense, even if someone falls away, we're never separated from the love of Christ. Christ always loves us. Christ always wants us to come back. So Christ even loves the ungodly, right? This is what we are told in Romans. This is what we are told in many other places as well. Um, you know, that Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for those who, um, you know. So no, nothing uh, can separate us from the love of Christ in that way. Um, and, but then in the second part, it's a little bit more complicated because it says, um, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So none of these things are able to separate us from this love of God. So in that way, so the first thing is that this love of God is not necessarily our salvation because God loves everyone. And so then if we're going to take that tack, then everyone must be saved. Um, which I mean, there are people who are universalists, but that's not most of the people who I'm dealing with in these sorts of discussions. That's not Jordan. Um, so none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ, which is, or the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, this love, which was manifest to us on the cross. None of these things can separate us from it. And so that's, I, I would say that, you know, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Um, what is he saying that about? For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. So even though as believers, we are those who are persecuted, um, tried, all these things, we are more than conquerors in Christ through him who loved us. For I'm, you know, none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. But in this, in this very vein, um, if, Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What if we are trying to be more than conquerors through our own will? What if we are not seeking after the love of God? If Unless you're going to take attack that God forces you to be loved by him um, or forces you to love him back, right? This is, I don't think this is, this is at all teaching that, um, you can't lose your salvation in any way because the one who is, you know, separating himself from the love of God is the one who is going to be overcome by these things. We know this because all of these things are, you know, bad things, 
but ultimately the believer will be saved out of this, right? By grace, by God's work, through faith, right? Again, faith is something you do for your salvation, for good things. And so um, we're more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Uh, going back again, if I have any other comments, who also makes intercession for us? Let's see. What shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us? Um, who shall bring a charge against God's elected? It's God who justifies, who is it who condemned? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, who is also risen, who is after. So nothing, none of these things can separate us. But it doesn't, it's not saying here that you can't separate yourself. And one of the problems with this understanding that you can't lose your salvation. It's like, so at one point in time, you trusted in God. And now God's going to force you for to be saved, even if you don't want to. God's going to force you to remain in that, even if you don't want to. So again, I don't think that this is teaching this at all. Um, I don't think it's teaching. I don't think this passage in particular, Romans 8, is saying the opposite. I don't think it's, I don't think it's saying... I don't think that's what Paul's point was. I think his point is to say that God's love is there for you, right? No matter, no matter anything that comes upon you, God's love is there for you. And so, so yeah. So um, then in conclusion, because uh, that's all I had to say about the verses. So in conclusion, having God in our heart must change us. If we cease to be changed, God is not in us. We are living this new life. We are living this life of transformation. This whole understanding of salvation that I've tried to put forward, this whole understanding of an inheritance that comes along with it. Um, God's Having God in our heart is something that must change us. We are being changed by God. Um, our, if For nothing else, you know, your faith must, is, is the thing which is producing these works. And we didn't even get into passages like James 2, or James 1, for that matter. We didn't even get into passages um, like Romans 4 and 5. But um, this is what I've been trying to put forward, that having God in our heart must change us. Um, when we cut ourselves off from God, we cut ourselves off from life, right? And so if we understand sin as the chains of the devil, sin as chains of the demons that are trying to pull us down, uh, sin in the uh, ancient Mesopotamian culture where we kind of get our word from is this understanding of this thing that comes out from the cracks of the ground and pulls people down into the underworld. So if we have sin, we cannot be brought into this life of God. Um, eternal life is what, let's see here. Eternal life is what we are united to and being brought into. We can cease this bringing though. So we don't, you know, just because we're being brought into eternal life, we're being brought into this inheritance. We're, you know, we're, Ephesians 1, we didn't have enough time to go into it, but we're told to act like those who are receiving the inheritance. Just because of that doesn't mean that we can't separate ourselves from this. Faith, belief, and trust, all of these sorts of things must be followed by action. So if you say you believe something, if you have faith, if you have trust in it, you are going to do it. Um, to say that I believe something and not to do it is not, is not real belief at all. That's not compelling to anything. Um, so, and then again, we are saved to do good works, Ephesians 2. Good works apart from God's kingdom is, or good works being a part of God's kingdom is why we are saved. So we are saved, right? So we are made justified in God's sight 
by his grace, by his working through our faith, which is, you know, in action, in order that we might work in God's kingdom, in order that we might bring him glory. This is why we are saved. Um, the last thing to keep in mind here is that in the Garden of Eden, the garden was a place on the earth. And the idea was that humans would go and bring God's rule and reign, his dominion to the rest of the world. So what, but then because of Adam's sin, that whole thing was tainted. And now through Christ, we are brought back into reconciliation with God. And the works that we do are that. The works are to bring God's kingdom to all creation. And that's what we are called to as children of God, even as human beings, that's, you know, that is part of the reason why we are condemned is because we are not doing this thing that we ought to do. And so, um, we are saved by this grace through faith for good works. The reason why we're saved is to be a part of God's kingdom and being a part of God's kingdom means doing something. So that's all I have to say about this. Um, then being kind of a long video, but hopefully, uh, it was at least helpful to me. So thanks for watching.